right, I invite you all to stand as a gesture of our reverence and surrender uh, for the scriptures today. We're reading from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord, and you will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. And all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people of the, the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may grab a seat. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been waiting for the Lord with Isaiah in this Advent season. So the season of Advent is a season of anticipation where the people of God kind of rehearse the way that the Old Testament people of God were waiting for the Lord to, to move, were longing on him to come and rescue them and restore them. And as we do that, we remember how God has indeed come through Jesus and how we also still, with these same people, keep waiting for God to finally fulfill his promises. So it involves a great deal of waiting, which we all struggle with mightily, and that's why we have Advent season to kind of retrain our hearts and minds to follow that command that is so repeated, which is wait on the Lord. And so what will it take for us to be able to wait on the Lord? The kind of focus for our passage is the very end, the last verse. For the, as the soil makes a sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. If you are an avid Bible reader, you may have a sense of the echo shown with that word garden, and that's a kind of a renewal or a longing for what the original Garden of Eden was supposed to do, which would lead toward a fulfillment where the whole creation, the whole world, was doing what God originally wanted the world to do, which is bring righteousness and praise for God, be in right relationship with God and God's people and be in right relationship with all the whole world and gather up praises from the bottom to the top. So this is kind of the vision of the long-term gain, the long-term hope that the sovereign Lord will do will bring a restoration of what the original creation project was. So this points to the hope for all creation. And that's kind of the main emphasis today. 
that if we are going to have perseverance to wait on the Lord for the remainder of this life, you, if you're in this life, if you've been a, a person for any length of time, you can tell life is hard. There's lots of beauty in the world, things to celebrate, things to enjoy, things that can bring a sense of pleasure and smiles on our face and laughter, but the world is also filled with pain and suffering. And Advent gives us a, a time to acknowledge both. But to persevere with our commitment to Jesus, we need a sense of hope and that God will eventually make all things right and restore all things. And this Christian hope is not a wish kind of hope. It's not like, I'm hopeful that everything's going to work out one day. I'm hopeful that this situation I can't control, that this unknown future will come to pass. Biblical hope is more a certainty of God for sure going to do something. It is a, a certainty about the future. It is a confidence of what will happen. That is now hope is like a certified object. It's something that we have in our hands that is real. And so clarity on what that hope is. And this passage gives us a vision of what that hope is. What will it look like in the end of all things? Because if you can be aware of how the whole thing's going to end, that gives you kind of a reassurance for how you can like enjoy and be, and be able to persevere and wait for the moment. So as a, as a really bad example of how I learned this, I oftentimes have to record Kentucky basketball games because I have other things going on, but I have a loyalty that I got to watch them eventually. And most times I try to not know the score so I can watch it and pretend like I'm watching real time, like you'll still get hyped up, which also leads to like real emotions and makes me angry. But then if I can know the score beforehand, like last night I accidentally found out the score of a big game, then I was able to enjoy in peace because I knew the outcome was going to be in my favor. And it was. So the game was close, it was up and down, and I'm like, oh, well, they're going to win, though, so it's going to be fun, so I can cruise it out. In the same way, if you know the end of all things is going to be good news, people are like, why is he talking about sports ball? I try, to, I try to watch it. I try not to have sports metaphors. If it's your first time here, you're like, man, why is he talking about sports war? Usually, I don't do that. But in this case, it helps. But if you can know how the end of all things is going to be, it does give you perseverance to endure the, the ups and downs of life. And so Isaiah gives us this vision for what Christian hope is. It has these four qualities. The righting of wrongs, the renewal of persons, the restoration of vocation, and the redemption of time. Righting of wrongs, renewal of persons, restoration of vocation, and the redemption of time. We're going to take these things through. Righting of wrongs. So this starts out, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. So in Isaiah, written like six, seven hundred years before Jesus came, Isaiah kind of has this vision of God making things right after bringing judgment. He's going to bring judgment on God's people because they've broken his covenant. And yet, even through that judgment that will last for a moment, God is promising he will make all things right. And in Isaiah, there are these mysterious kind of figures, the suffering servant, the anointed one here, that kind of are raised up by the Lord to do his work. And so this person speaking in Isaiah's prophecy is the anointed one that will carry out God's plan to make things right, to restore the world. So this anointed one is about to describe what God is going to empower him to do. So you can see kind of a Trinitarian flavor to this. We have the spirit of the sovereign Lord, the God of the Exodus, the God who made all things, the God of the people of Israel has anointed this person to do what only God can do. Sounds strangely similar to the Holy Spirit, the Son, Jesus, and the Father. So what is this anointed one going to do? He's going to start to right all wrongs. He says, he will proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. So you see a turning of right, a reversal of fortunes for people who were wrong, the poor, the destitute, people who are at the mercies of those with social uh, and economic wealth and clout. They're at their mercies. But these people that have lived a life of daily bad news, no way to change their situation, will now have good news announced to them when their reversal is made right. The brokenhearted, which is a catch-all for describing all the things that could break humans down, everything that could lead to emotional turmoil, and including, in this point, conviction for sin. So some of these wrongs, Many of them are things wrongly done to people, to us, to the people, but also wrongs that they themselves have participated in causing. So if you sin, it does lead to, over time, a broken heart, and this, but we have here a reversal of that. A heart that's been broken and wounded will now be bandaged and bound up and healed. The captives, who are more like slaves to humans, will be released and set free. The prisoners, who are more in kind of a jail kind of setting, will be released from their dungeon of darkness and will now have light. People who are mourning will have the reversal and get comforted. And not only the initial comfort of the thing that caused the mourning, but ongoing provision to provide so that you would never have to grieve again. This is the identifying of all things wrong are going to be made right. All wounds caused are going to be healed. All scars given are going to be removed. Nothing's going to remain. And this is from a broader uh, vision of proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. If you're also a Bible reader, you may know in Exodus, the year of the Jubilee, that made a promise that every 49 years, all debts canceled, all property returned, people released from slavery and prison. It's like fully everything's made right and reset every 49 years. No evidence that they actually ever practiced it, just as many people in our day would never want to practice it. Yet the Lord is like, he will make it happen and will practice it. And also the day of vengeance for our God. That this proclamation of hope does come with a warning that if you don't respond to what this Lord is wanting to do for his everlasting party that's going to make things right, he will grant you your wish, which is to not be at the party. He loves you too much to make you want to come. So if you insist on going against the creator's will, the redeemer's will, he will grant you what you want, which is not him. And that is the day of vengeance to come. And perhaps you might think, man, aren't we beyond that? Can't we be nice to all and make everything right? Man, I don't know if you live like that to really know for sure, but my man Miroslav Volf has lived that kind of life. He's a scholar, and his book, Exclusion and Embrace, is one of the best books I've ever read on like forgiveness and reconciliation because this dude has endured personal harm where his brother was killed when he was, uh, when he was one, his brother was five, but also communal harm in that he was... Uh, from Bosnia when there was a crazy war in the early 90s, and many of his people were really tremendously harmed and violently assaulted and raped, and it was terrible. But he writes this book about forgiveness, and in it he eventually gets to the final chapter that includes a sense of judgment, and he has these great lines to say, if you want to be able to forgive enemies, to, not, to, to, to respond with nonviolence when you've been violently mistreated, you, you can only derive the resources to do that if you believe that God will judge. If you believe God will finally get justice and hold wrongdoers accountable, 
who have gotten away with doing harm to human beings. They think they have not been seen. They've gotten away and not been punished. But the Lord does see, and he will. If you can believe that, then you will be able to shockingly be able to forgive against all odds. Shockingly be able to love people even that did you terrible harm. And he even has this line that says, if it, it takes the quiet of a suburban home, the insulated life of the suburban home, to entertain the pleasantry, he says, that you can imagine a God that won't judge the violence. And so instead, place yourself in the place of a true victim that, that cannot get away from their perpetrator, that sees their perpetrator set and free, that needs accountability, accountability held. And maybe you in this room have been a victim of abuse or harassment. Maybe a coach or a family member or a parent has harmed you, a spouse, someone has done you harm that you cannot get accountability for. It is actually good news to know that God is going to set things right one day. And also, if they were to repent, God would welcome them in, which we have evidence of that. And so it takes the quiet of a suburban home to want this frolicking hope that does not include a warning that those who do wrong will also be judged in the end. But we want that. A righting of wrongs is good news for the weary. Second, the renewal of persons. As soon as God starts seeing things laid out, man, we've had too much uh, uh, injustice. We've got to set it all right and make things right again. The, we, he has his beloved human creatures caught up in that kind of harm. There's been a, a, a massive war zone, and casualties are everywhere. And if God is going to make things right, he can't just make situations right. He has to get into the hearts of actual people. So he wants to bestow on them, the human beings involved in this, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And this imagery has a renewal that is total and full and complete. It starts from head to toe. Notice it starts with the image of a crown, and then it goes down to the oil of joy on the head, down to the clothing that they wear, and then finally the feet planted into the ground like an oaks of righteousness. That is the degree of renewal that we're talking about. Anywhere in which, from head to toe, you have experienced a wrong, you have endured a wound, you have done wrong and committed a sin, God's going to give like a full-blown makeover from head to toe and make your whole person renewed. Like, man, isn't that got good news? Head to toe, you get beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair, and you will be firmly planted in this new right relationship with God for him to display who you are. And it's not only from head to toe, it's from outside in. So if you think about the spirit that groans with grief, they, people would mark their forehead with ashes to symbolize the state of grief they're in. I love that. If you have been a grieving person, don't you wish we had that now? Because you walk around carrying a grief that just eats at you. It's the only thing in your mind. But everyone else sees you, man, looking all joyful in your normal attire. People back then knew, I want people to know that I'm grieving, and so they would wear sackcloth and put on ashes on their forehead and so that everyone would know this person is wearing a grief. And if you've been a griever, you know you wear that, right? It sticks with you. And you would like people to know but also not know. You want them to kind of see it but not mention it. But that's what the ashes are for. But he's going to start from the outside, the ashes on the outside. But then you have the clothing and then all the way down to the morning, which is like a vocal expression of the grief, to the very spirit. So not only is he going from head to toe, a full renewal. It's like a scan going down to heal you, make you right. He's going to go on the outside, the tips of your fingertips, the outside of your forehead, 
all the way to your very inner spirit where your despair is there. This renewal is full and complete. He wants you, your whole person in. Your whole person's welcome to the party, and he is doing the things to make them right. It's not you going to have to do this. We need you to change your clothes and get things right. It's the Lord, the anointed one, that is going to come, and when he makes things right, he's going to bestow on you a full-blown renewal from head to toe, from outside in, so that when you are coming into his party, he has you fully blameless, clean, washed, and forgiven, and your memories even are forgiven and healed to where you will no longer carry wounds. And that's the brutal thing that, you, that sticks with you. It feels like it can't go away, and he's saying it will go away when I renew you in full. So we have a restoration of vocation. Well, what's this, talk, what's this about? Once these people are renewed, check this out. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. So he says these renewed people will be called, they have a new name, priests and ministers. What's a priest and a minister do? They are mediators, right? They are the go-betweens. We have God, we have the people, and the priest is the one that kind of mediates between the two. But that, is, that vision for what humans are supposed to do is actually rooted in the creation story, where God makes people in their image, in his image, and the, as the crown of creation, humans get a unique and special job to bring God's rule to the earth. It says they will subdue the, the earth. They are going to be God's intermediary people that will take what God wants to happen and make it happen in the world. And then what priests do, the ministers, they gather up the praises of the world and kind of return them back to God. And so it says that humans are even higher than angels, just a little lower than God to be this intermediary status. But when we betray God, when we go against what he wants, we kind of either break that status, and instead of doing good for the world, we bring destruction. The ancient ruins are destroyed. Instead of having positive relationships that are flowing from us, we have enemy relationships and hostility. And so in that role where we're supposed to bring beauty and harmony and goodness, instead humans, because they say we want to not be middle managers, we want to run our own world, but then we wreak havoc. But when God renews us, he wants to keep his same creation project where humans still have a special role to represent what he wants us, what he wants the world to be and do, and we get to be a part of that. And so when he calls God's people in Israel, he tells them they will be a royal priesthood. They, as a nation, will be God's uh, middleman between God and the rest of creation. And then in the New Testament, we're told of a priesthood of all believers where to be a, a, a believer is to be now a priest. And so if you're a Christian, you now are a priest and a minister. It's not a special class. That's now what your calling is. So you know that phrase like hurt people hurt people? Like if you're hurt, you bring hurt. Well, if you're a renewed person, you then start to like bring renewal out of you. And this happens in two ways. First, through places. Ruins of ancient cities and places that have been devastated for generations, no matter how bad the place has been torn up. And you can even think about this in your own life. Can you think of uh, pl specific places, maybe cities, towns, neighborhoods, homes, buildings, where like 
bad things happen to you or you did bad things and like that kind of area of town like kind of associated with darkness you think, you think that, like what's going to happen instead is those places will all be renewed in your mind like when you are renewed and the god makes all things right you will not no longer have a place that feels dark and sometimes there's evidence of that darkness where like things are torn up sometimes it's just we have memories of it the places that have been harmed because of memories from havoc wreaked on them will be made right and God is going to call priests and ministers to do the rebuilding. So heaven is not like the end of all things won't just be like we kind of frolic around the daffodils enjoying our pleasures on, you know, a harp on the clouds kind of vibe. We are commissioned by the Lord to be a part of a grand rebuilding and restoring uh, of creation. And we get to do that forever with partnership with him. And not only with him, but also in renewed relationships. These At one point, there was... Uh, hostility between foreigners and strangers and the people of Israel, but now instead there's going to be a co-working relationship where they will manage the flocks together and the fields and vineyards and together will produce a whole wealth and riches that they will enjoy. And some of that can seem like, is this a kind of slavery kind of thing? But the fact that they're priests and ministers of God doing God's will, it is not a hierarchy being bestowed. It is a renewed partnership. There was enemies and hostilities. Now there's harmony and unity with people working together for, for, for God's will, and these people will rebuild creation. And we need this good news too. As a part of your renewal, like let's say you're in a process of like healing, like you're going to go into therapy or whatever, you're working on a process of inner healing and working on yourself. A big part of that goal is always going to go beyond just like your mood. Like your mood can be changed. Your feelings about yourself and the world can like be shifted and can be healed. But eventually it's going to be like, how is that going to work out with your job? How's it going to, what, what do you have influence over and how do we bring this healing in you to bring goodness to wherever you are? What relationships do you have that you can bring hope and encouragement and good news in? Like any kind of good therapist would do that. Any kind of good teacher is imagining not just like I'm going to improve your personal internal, interior life, but when that is done well, it's going to flow outwardly. And humans need that. You need a purpose and meaning in life to, for your life to count. And we live in this world where it feels like none of our stuff matters because like, we're living at the, at the hands of people with much more power than us. But the promise of the scripture is one day God's going to make things right and you get to be a part of it. And you can even right now in your little sphere of influence begin to kind of echo this hope around you. It might be a small sphere. It might just begin with your own very body and the room you live in. But it is a sphere nonetheless that you get to kind of uh, almost play pretend, participate, and bring the hope of the future into that present space to bring the renewal that God's going to bring into that space. So not only are you renewed when the wrongs are righted, but you have a purpose now, a meaning now, a reason to live and move forward, a re something that gives weight to your actions. And humans need that too. Once you get the weight from a stressful job and a stressful family life, and like the stress of raising kids, and like you feel like you're not slept very well. Once you get the weight, you think you want to go without the weight. And like you contemplate, man, I need a long vacation. I want some time away. You get it for two days, and then you feel like you're worthless and you need some weight again in your life. Like that's a human call to carry something heavy and do something that matters. And God affirms that in us because He makes that in us. So we have a renewed, a righting of wrongs, renewed personal life from top to bottom, inside and out and we get a new job to restore things. Finally, we have the redemption of time. Humans are grounded in time. 
And so much of the pain in our life, like right now, your pain in your present time, oftentimes has like a, a past that is unresolved of things done to you, things you've done, memories you had that you wish you could forget, and a future that feels uncertain, right? You have a future that seems left open. Humans are frail, and you have a capacity to imagine all kinds of futures for you personally and for the world, and those, that imagination can lead to anxiety because you can't control it. You can't control the well-being of the people you love most. You can't control so much in this world. You have very limited control, really. And so us being bound in time leads to a lot of our pain and heartache. And we imagine maybe God will take us out of time, but I think God has bound us in time, and we will live in time, but he's going to make that time right. Check out how he's going to do this. First, we have our past healed. These people of God have endured shame. Instead of shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. Shame and disgrace is what sticks in you from the inside out based on the, the complex cycle of what's been done to you and what you do. It's a sense of embarrassment, a sense that you are not enough, a sense that you are damaged goods, a sense that everyone can see this weak point in you that you wish you could hide, an anxiety that flows from that sticking with you and an embarrassment from that, and even a guilt maybe from that, that is a sticking of your past. Many times for them, it's what's been done to them, but also the choices that we have made, and it kind of sticks to us like glue. When you have loved, like, your reputation healed from things that people have seen you do stupid things, I feel like half the time I leave a sermon, and I'm like, man, what did I just say? I can't believe I've said that stupid line. Uh, Lord, please let none of them remember that one. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to say that. It kind of came on the spot, and I wish I didn't. And you're like, it sticks to you, right? And that's a minor, relatively minor thing. It might not be minor to you. <laughs> you should tell me. You should always tell me because chances are someone told me this week, and I'm like, I know, I know, I wish I didn't. So you should always tell me, give me a chance to own it, and that would help remove my shame. But there, obviously all of us have much bigger things than that, right, where you, you, something sticks in your mind about your past that you wish could go away. God's going to heal that and replace your shame with a double portion and a, your disgrace with an inheritance, which gets to the future that's going to be made right. So look at what you're guaranteed to get instead of a past that has maybe ruined and wants to kind of project itself into the future. That's the danger of being human. You have this past that sticks to you, and you're going to let it determine what's going to come next. But instead, we should let the future that God has planned for us be what determines what comes next. He says, you will receive a double portion. You will rejoice in an inheritance. You will inherit a double portion, meaning all the bad that happened, you're going to get double of that on the good side will, will come for you. And everlasting joy will be yours. It's forever. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. God is going to make a promise to you and to us, to his people, that is an unbreakable relationship, permanently secure. It will never end. It will never go away. The long-term, worst-case scenario for the Christian is an everlasting relationship with God and God's people. That's your long-term, worst-case scenario. If you're like me, I'm, a, I'm amazing at imagining worst-case scenarios. But there are all really short-term, worst-case scenarios, like all the bad things that could possibly happen. My son's the same way, man. That brother's morbid. He's like, Dad, what's the worst thing that could ever happen? I'm like, man, why are you asking? Make me think about this darkness. My daughter's like, don't talk about bad things at the table. <laughs> She's like, exact opposite. I thought I told you not to talk about bad stuff. So 
Instead of that, we have a good future to look forward to. Our long-term best-case scenario is a, is a relationship with God that will never end, the one who made us and loves us and calls us delightful, and we will be with his people and making things right. That's your long-term worst-case scenario. It doesn't matter what's happening now. It doesn't even matter what's going to happen in a decade. It does matter only because it's going to get roped into what God's going to make right. But that doesn't have to break us down and cause despair because even in our sadness, our tears are temporary. You should still grieve it. The worst thing we can do with this information is tell a person grieving and in shame and disgrace, hey, don't cry. Be happy because your future's right. That, that's the worst thing you can do with this. Actually, what's to come gives reason for us to stare the darkness in the face now and say, we can tell that God doesn't really want this. It doesn't belong here. Because we can see the future that he's laid out for us, and it's not going to include cancer and death and heartache and pain and divorce and betrayal. It's not going to include that. And so we now should look straight at those things and say, oh, this stuff is alien. Like, it doesn't belong in God's good world. It doesn't count here. So if you feel a rage, an anger, a despair that's temporary in the face of negativity and grief and heartache, you are actually in good and good company with the God who feels the same. He weeps in the face of death, even knowing he will cure it. Remember that story? His buddy Lazarus died. He knew he was going to cure it and make him rise from the dead, and he still wept. We can follow that lead to say, I get to weep now on this day of heartache, even because, partially because I know God's going to make it right. We just give an increased permission to face that heartache and pain and endure it. Instead, when we think we might not come, we will avoid the hard stuff. We will avoid, we don't want to face it. We've got to pretend it's not there. We have the courage to face it and grieve because you know the future laid out for you. So now your time, if, think, if, the, if your past is totally made right, if you can imagine that forgiveness and it's wiped clean, your memory is going to be healed, and your future is secured, like you're able then to engage in the present with a spirit of like non-anxiety, right? You can bring peace where there's anxiety because the things that cause people anxiety is an unresolved past and an unresolved future. Now, we carry those wounds still, but you as a Christian bear it differently. It's not a sorrow that leads to death. It's a sorrow that you know is real, and it hurts, and it's not okay, but praise God it is temporary. And that has to be good enough news to make us cling to and persevere for the hope that we have in the future. So what kind of God is this that can right all wrongs, renew all persons, restore our purpose and vocation, and redeem all time? He's a Lord, he says, who loves justice. You think you want fairness? God wants justice. He hates robbery and wrongdoing. It matters to him. Human beings and their choices matter to him. He's not thinking like, oh, this is no big deal. You're just only human. He, this is a God who, man, if some little situation of abuse happens on the outskirts of ancient Israel, it's devastating to the Lord. He got to raise up a prophet out of the fields and send him straight to the abuser to call it out because this is not okay. That's the kind of God you have. Things done in hidden places that don't make the news that we think, that's ah, not a big deal. It's only one person. It's, it causes God to be enraged. It's a catastrophe. You can't imagine that this would be the case. He's a God who wants every situation, every relationship, every human being made right and treated well. And so he loves justice, and he is insistent that he's going to carry that out, and he is faithful to his purpose. So he makes a promise to the world that it is good, 
and a commitment to his people. And even if they betray him and go against them and cause all kinds of havoc, his promise that he's faithful to does not waver. He's not like, ooh, I got into a bad commitment. I shouldn't have said yes to this. Oh, man, I better draw a boundary. I better, I better zoom out. That's what humans have to do to survive. But the Lord is capable and powerful, and he doesn't have to draw boundaries. He's like, I'm all in with you no matter what. I'm never going to leave you. I want to make everything right, and I'm committed to seeing it through. He will do so. This is the kind of God that we have. And we see the anointed one's response. Verse 10, he hears what he will be told he has to do, and I love this. I delight greatly in the Lord, and my soul rejoices in my God. This is Jesus. This is his response to this call. All the work Jesus does on the cross to set things right, he delights greatly in. Hebrews 11 says, for the joy set before him, the joy of making this whole world right, he endured the cross. This is the Lord Jesus delights and rejoices in the call on his life to be the one that brings God's restoration to all things into you. We imagine a Lord who might be frustrated with us. He's easily angered. We kind of like put like our impatient, you know, dads on, on our life, like onto the Lord. And like he will like be annoyed and have and have a, a temper. And stuff. He's not annoyed by you. He rejoices and delights in the chance to pursue you to the end and include you in his worldwide restoration. He delights in it. He rejoices. And this is his heart for you. It is not an impatient heart. It's not a heart that delights greatly in pushing you away. He delights greatly in renewing you from inside and out and making this world right. And so he accepts this commissioning and has a garment of salvation that is put on him and a robe of righteousness to make all relationships right. He accepts this, and he delights greatly and rejoices in it. And we don't have to wonder who this anointed figure is because Jesus does this right after conquering Satan in the wilderness Luke said, this is his, Luke's version, his first encounter in public. He went to Nazareth. This is fresh off of conquering Satan and he, all the temptations. He, he dominated him. Comes into Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. He grabbed this scroll that we just read today. He unrolled it. He found this particular section. And he read, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus is the one. Because he's anointed Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he pulled this boss move. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the person, sat down, had a long pregnant pause as eyes fastened on him, and then said, today this is fulfilled. This is a done deal now. Love it, man. If you're wandering the evidence... I just conquered Satan in the wilderness, and we're about to see Satan fall like lightning in the, in the years to come. And he knew what it would take him to on the cross. He accepted this commissioning with great delight and rejoicing, even while it caused him un, unimaginable pain. And we now hear this vision from Isaiah. And instead of thinking this must be some type of fantasy world, because you live in a world of darkness and think that he, this can never be made right, we now have in the flesh... The, the Lord, the anointed one, became a human being in this peasant in Nazareth. And through this surprising peasant that started as a baby, born from a virgin, and then went to the cross and died a political death, a crazy, terrible, shameful death. Through that whole person and event, the promises in Isaiah 61, the vision cast there has been fulfilled. And so now we wait for those promises to be fulfilled in full. 
but we persevere differently because we actually know the answer to the end. We know the end result already, and it's good news, and it's sure news. And so this is all we got to do. I love this verse from Philippians. Not that I, he's talked about the vision for the future. He says, not that I've already obtained all this that's to come, or I've already arrived at that goal. We've not got to that vision yet, but what do I do? I press on, and I take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I love that image. Paul feels like it's his responsibility. He's like, all I know is I got nothing else to cling to. My past is jacked up. I used to be a murderer. My future's unclear. I've been around prison, and I'm in prison now. I'm going to die young because of it. Uh, I have all kinds of shame stuck to me. I have no way out of this, and so I'm going to grab Jesus tightly, only for him to realize as he grabs on the hope that Jesus has given him that Jesus is grabbing him even harder. It's like when you are walking a little toddler, and they're grabbing you tight, but their grip's not very strong, and they start to fall, but you're still pulling them along. You know, they think they're holding on to you, but you're, like, kind of dragging them through and hoping that you don't rip. That's why we're holding on to Jesus. We think we're grabbing hold of him, but he's actually got us even more secure than our feeble grasp. It's like when someone shakes your hand, but they got one of them big old man hands, and it's like your hand just kind of swallowed up in there, like, please don't judge me. Like, please don't go tell your friends that my hand can't even shake hands. That's how our hands are in, in Jesus' hand. He's grabbing hold of them, taking it tightly, and he's not going to let go of us. And so, but you still imagine in your role that you, have a, you make every effort, it says, to, to take hold of this vision that God's had for you. And anywhere that you have some influence, you, he will, the Spirit will help you begin to make little inroads to bring any piece of that future vision into your life now. It may be so small. It may be a small baby step. It may not make a headline. The world won't care about it. It's not going to be Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok worthy. It's not going to make a headline. It doesn't matter. But the king will see it, and you, he will rejoice and delight as you are taking hold of that future vision to bring it into now. He's already promised it and made it right and did all the work for us. We take on, press on, and grab hold of him to receive it. Let's pray.